Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Strongman politics are nothing new. But its embrace among democracies, new and old, feels confusing, overwhelming. The muscular, exclusionary rhetoric. The strident nationalism. The invocation of a more glorious but mythical past. If you want to stop the destruction of America and really reinvigorate that good old-fashioned American dream, you must vote Republican. Have to do it. The steady abandonment of democratic values. Strongmen have been whipping up majoritarian sentiment and quashing democratic impulses and institutions all over the world. We are here 75 years down the line. But then the next big question um, that we are faced with is, are we where we should, we should have been or where our nation builders, did they have this vision of India? Democracy is shriveling and illiberalism is on the rise. We've been watching the chipping away of entrenched democratic norms for more than three decades. But the sense of urgency has perhaps never been so great. Less and less people who are Turkish citizens have been able to find a place for themselves, uh, either economically or politically, in the country. And there's been major restrictions on you know, freedom of press and a general state of unease and kind of closing off from the world. Closing off from the world. For the average person, life can become so narrow that those who can leave and the rest have to figure out how to survive. Right now under CC, we've reached the point where the army is actually the state. It's not just a state within the state anymore. It is now exercising control over everything in the country, over the economy, over politics. Under Sisi, there is an unprecedented crackdown on politics and political opposition that Egypt had not seen something like that in its modern history. Ideas producer Nahid Mustafa brings us stories from the front lines of authoritarianism in India, Turkey and Egypt. This is the fourth in a series we're calling The New World Disorder. This episode is called The Rise of the Strongman. Chapter 1. The Early Days It's a joyous moment, I would say, that we have existed for the last 75 years. 
uh, many political thinkers, especially in the West, um, the way they had predicted our future was that, you know, given the kind of regional, uh, religious, caste, uh, language, identity we have and diversity we have, um, it's going to be um, difficult for us to be on our own. Uh, my name is Arfa Khanam Sherwani, and I and I work as senior editor with a news website called TheWire.in. Um, I also lead their multimedia team, so I am essentially a broadcaster uh, who is on a digital platform. So, in a way, I would say we proved everybody wrong. We are here, seventy-five years down the line. But then the next big question um, that we are faced with is: Are we where we should? we should have been or where our nation builders did they have this vision of india i would say partly yes and partly no i would start with a no why i am saying no because this is exactly the time when we are going through perhaps an existential crisis for indian democracy where the biggest threat to indian democracy is coming from the people who are ruling us who have the responsibility of implementing this constitution and making india uh, you know you know a meaningful uh, democracy and implementing the constitution in letter and spirit the early days you know the nation was coming out of a war world war 1 its own independence war and it, it was a new republic so there was a lot of hope but also you know a lot of mistakes uh, being made a lot of hopes being dashed because part of you know becoming a nation is excluding people as well as figuring out how do we live together ourselves. My name is Jehante Kailu, and I'm a PhD candidate in anthropology at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. And I'm also a co-editor of the Turkey page at Jadalia.com, a publication focused on the Middle East. The 20s and 30s are were like a combination of hopes and that are being fulfilled as well as dashed in terms of living together in a new republic under a single party regime and the most important arguably change was the introduction of a completely secular uh, way of life and that was also enforced by the state as well as the state control of religion in the 50s this started to change with, um, again, a new wave of hope with the ending of the single-party regime and the introduction of the multi-party regime, so like a transition to democracy, a more democratic system. But this kind of came to an end by the uh, 20-teens when AKP transitioned from being a ruling party to a sort of acting more like a regime. And there was more and more fracturing within the right wing itself. And the regime started isolating itself more and more and started purging a lot of people that it was in coalition with. And this brought us to the last decade in which the economy has been very unstable. Politically, less and less people who are Turkish citizens have been able to find a place for themselves. Uh, either economically or politically in the country. And there's been major restrictions on you know, freedom of press, a lot of the opposition leaders imprisoned, 
and a general state of, uh, I would say, like, unease and kind of closing off from the world. My name is Sarah Horshed. I'm currently writing my PhD dissertation at Western University in history about the history of um, Egypt during the Nasser era from the perspective of popular culture and what the Egyptian peoples watched on film and Egyptian cinema. In the wake of the Arab Spring and when the uprisings and the protests on the street were in full swing and shortly after that, there was a lot of hope on the streets, uh, a sense of ownership to the uh, of the country, a sense of regaining what had what was ours but was taken from us by a corrupt government and by its allies, basically the business community. People were finally feeling this country's ours, and we are capable of making change, and we will take part. It's Finally, the rule uh, of the people, for the people, by the people, there was high turnouts in uh, elections that took place uh, in the wake of, of the uprisings in 2011 and for the, until 2012. How would I describe my life growing up in Turkey? I would say it was a childhood that was very politicized. And that's not unique to me. When I was last visiting Turkey, I found my diary when I was around 10, 11 years old. And I found myself writing about not only political and economic events in Turkey, but also in the world. I think it's like 1995 or 1996. And I was writing about the Bosnian War terrorist attacks both in Turkey and uh, in Japan, the customs union that um, when Turkey became part of the EU customs union. And when I I sent this uh, to my friends because I thought it was super interesting and I found that even though we had grown up in different cities in Turkey, they were also writing about similar things and even though we grew up in different cities and our parents were not necessarily from the same uh, cultural or political backgrounds, we were all writing about political things as children. If you take my individual journey and through this, if I can take you along and try to explain to you how I have um, experienced India, lived the Indian reality and Indian democracy, um, you know, in the last 40 years of my life. I will start with my first encounter with Indian politics. And that was when I was a 12-year-old child. On 6 December 1992, there were two major, you know, Hindutva organizations, VHP and BJP. They had organized a rally uh, where 150,000 people, they were gathered at this mosque site, and this is a 16th century mosque we are talking about, which is called as Babri Masjid or Babri Mosque. This rally, you know, it, it immediately turned violent and the crowd, it overwhelmed the security forces and the mosque was demolished. And this place has a historical significance because um, as per the Hindu belief and tradition, 
this place is also considered this mosque and the city is also considered as the birthplace of lord rama and they call it you know um, ram janmabhoomi which essentially literally means the birthplace of lord ram so hindus and especially these hindu majoritarian organizations uh, extremist organizations they they had this claim over this mosque for the last several decades and after the demolition of the mosque more than 2000 people they were killed because the riots followed the demolition of the mosque and unfortunately i happened to be one of those people who i can say was a victim of that communal riots when i was just 12 year old i had my little baby brother who was barely a few weeks old i had him in my arms and i had to literally run for my life and also to save my brother so this is how my first encounter with indian politics with majoritarian extremist politics and also um in a way an introduction to my own complex identity of a muslim citizen so before i could actually turn into an adult and you know um could turn into a voter i was introduced to this very complex identity that that you know many of uh, my co-religionists are they they live with Chapter 2 The Shift The strong man rises slowly there's the occasional whisper of discontent about the economy or some vague feeling of anger about immigration but eventually those whispers and feelings are transformed seemingly in an instant into divisive political rhetoric A charismatic leader promises to restore lost dignity. He makes an appeal to us against them. Suddenly, he's building a wall or a palace of justice. His rhetoric is erasing the past and revising history. Sometimes, we can pinpoint the moment of shift, that single catalyzing event or that one specific speech, but often that moment becomes clear only in hindsight. Change, as they say, comes gradually. then suddenly the gaza uprising was a major major turning point and that i would say is a place where a lot of the turkish like secular but not only secular i would say young people together with like some people from the older generation experienced like what state violence could be because they were asking for something like very simple you know give us give us back the park and it was met with like an unconscionable amount of violence the gezi uprising was a wave of civil protests over the summer of 2013 in istanbul's taksim gezi park the unrest was a response to the violent eviction of a citizen objecting to an urban development plan for the park as time went on the protests grew along with the number of issues at the core from freedom of speech to the erosion of secular norms also very interestingly they realized like the police in the west were not equipped to deal with an uprising so like they brought police from kurdish cities or <laughs> trained for this and people for the first time realized oh this is what people in the southeast have been experiencing you know so it it was really interesting because it was a kind of disillusionment beyond the current regime but about like something about the nature of like how the Turkish state has generally dealt with ethnic minorities and 
also religious minorities. Arfa Hanum Sherwani had faced her own turning point nearly two decades before the Gezi protests. By the turn of the millennium, she was trying to figure out the way forward. I had to spend several weeks in a in a relief camp, in a refugee camp, and, and I had to wait for several months before I could resume school. So this is the kind of school life and the childhood I had. Then, of course, I tried to put that behind me and went to college, then finally came to national capital. And how I saw this politics turning and taking a different kind of, I would say, turns and twists, is that when I came here, I was still a late teenager, almost like a 20-year-old. This was in the year uh, 2000. Um, This is the time when I was thinking that maybe we were trying to put behind whatever communal violence and divisive politics that we had experienced. And, you know, citizens and even the government, for that matter, people who were in the establishment, trying to speak uh, a little bit a more modern language of empowerment, of inclusion, of diversity, of democratic rights. So this is how it was between, let's say, early 2000s to say about 2012 and 13, I would say for the next 10 years. And then this whole surge of, you know, Narendra Modi being presented as the next prime minister. Narendra Modi comes with a history, a political history, where when he was the chief minister, if we, even if we just go by official records, more than 1,200 people, most of them were Muslims, they were killed during communal rights in the year 2002. This was 10 years after Babri Mosque demolition. So, you know, this is what it was, that during these 10 years of Congress rule between 2004 and 14, uh, when I say that modern language of, you know, development, uh, inclusion, they, that the government was trying to speak, by which I mean, for the first time ever, a committee was set up which was called such a committee, uh, where for the first time on the official documents, it was written that this was this committee was being set up uh, under the guidance of the Prime Minister of India to evaluate socio-economic and educational status of Indian Muslims. So from there to now, we've come down to uh, a state where you know Muslims are at the verge of, I would say, or maybe they perhaps already have been reduced to a second-class citizenship. As for Egypt... Under Mubarak, uh, especially the last decade at least of his rule, Egyptians could feel unanimously almost that there was corruption that penetrated every aspect of their lives. And there was Mubarak and his family and their close circle of business people, this uh, close collaboration between business community and the Mubarak family with no um, accountability. And there was an army that was a state within the state. But right now under Sisi, we've reached the point where the army is actually the state. It's not just a state within the state anymore. It is now exercising control over everything in the country, over the economy, over politics. Under Sisi, the former army general and former defense minister, there is an unprecedented 
crackdown on politics and political opposition uh, that Egypt had not seen something like that in its modern history. And on top of that, there is also economic hardship that keeps worsening austerity measures and also the lifting of subsidies that had been in place for many decades since the Nasser era. The magnitude of the army's control over everything in people's lives and over the economy, over politics is really reaching an unprecedented level. The crackdown, the er political arrests, the uh, suppression of any form of dissidence uh, is getting uh, really extreme. Chapter 3, The Citizen Within the State So when Modi and people who subscribe to his politics, when they talk about the new India or modern India, what does that India look like? Interesting question. So only like about 48 hours ago, there's a news report that was published that there are some well-known Hindu saints, they have come forward and they have proposed a whole new constitution uh, where Muslims will not be allowed to vote. So they will be politically, electorally disenfranchised. I wouldn't say that the entire almost 40% people who voted for Narendra Modi and his party in, nine, in 2014 and 19, all of them uh, agree with this thought process. All of them agree to take away, uh, you know, literally like uh, officially take away the voting rights for Muslims, but maybe some parts, some percentage of them may go with this whole idea. So when I'm saying that how this new India is going to look like, for most people who do not want to be categorized as as communal, they call themselves that they um, they want India to be this, um, you know, world power. In Hindi, you call it a Vishwaguru or maybe a leader of the world. So this is the idea that they want to present. But by saying that, actually, even if they do not mean to kind of convert India into a theocratic Hindu Rashtra, what they essentially still um, mean is that Muslims being reduced to, I would say, a subordinated, a more subjugated an inferior uh, section um, of the population uh, where the Hindu uh, male and upper caste, so Hindu upper caste male, basically this whole idea of a new India, um, as I understand it as a Muslim woman, is that this, this nation is uh, being built for Hindu upper caste male. If you had to describe uh, what the ideal citizen looks like and, and what he thinks and what he does and, and how he views his place in, in, the, in the new India. How would you describe that? So again, this whole idea about India being this world power, that India may be, uh, you know, becoming a bigger, a more powerful country than any other country in the world. That's one. And two, all, you know, the religious minorities, uh, the lowest, lower caste groups, the Dalits, the, the tribals, the farmers, the laborers, people who, who are regionally marginalized, I would say all of the Northeast and Jammu and Kashmir, all of these people will be reduced on and will be limited to the periphery of the society. 
where this, these upper caste Hindu male will be allowed to formulate all the policies and will be, will be ruling over India. How has the definition of Turkishness shifted as things have become more, let's say, illiberal in, within Turkey? In terms of Turkishness, I think this is actually something independent of the regime. Of course, like the regime is the current entity responsible for all the the crimes that are committed in the name of Turkishness. But I would say this like definition, this this notion of like who should be included in the definition of Turkishness was always contested. But as long as like these disagreements exist in Turkey or in any other place about who belongs to the the nation or the republic or the notion of Turkishness, like any regime that comes along is going to take advantage of that. And unfortunately, at some point, the current regime started to take advantage of those differences for political gain. And especially after 2013, I think the current regime started taking more and more advantage of, of Turkish nationalism, I would say, like as an antagonizer, as like, not as a uniting force, but as a dividing force to make cover for its crimes. If you're someone who questions the regime at all, or the narrative that they put out about the country, you're not considered a good citizen. And if you're someone the ideal subject of the regime is someone who unquestioningly accepts and reproduces that the regime puts out about the state of the country or the doings of the regime. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Seven decades ago, the political theorist Hannah Arendt wrote about the right to have rights. She said human rights only mean something to the extent that people are also citizens of a place, a territory, that can protect and enforce those rights. As authoritarianism grows, rights shrink, and who is entitled to those rights also narrows. A lot of people start self-censoring because... The things that you say that might be construed as a criticism of the government can get you in a lot of trouble, even in a casual context. Ideas producer Nahid Mustafa brings us stories from the front lines of authoritarianism in Turkey, Egypt, and India. We're calling this episode The Rise of the Strongman. 
Chapter 4. Coping Jahan Tikai Lu grew up in Turkey during some of its most volatile periods. She says self-censorship has become the norm. So you can imagine that what that makes of people's like work life or even social life. That's that's like very heavily felt. A lot of people, a lot of us, I would say, have locked our social media accounts. Like there used to be more open debate on like Twitter, especially like back in 2013, during the time of Gezi Uprising, that was like the high point of that. But it was also like going on for a time like before and after that but when a lot of people started being arrested just for like tweets or like facebook posts people started locking down uh their social media accounts which again it just creates an echo chamber at that point right like just dividing people further and further and kind of like locking them into their own communities Sara Horshid is now pursuing a PhD in history, but in her previous life in Egypt, she worked as a journalist. She says the level of repression in Egypt today has its citizens scrambling to find support. The Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt is no more, and obviously uh, they don't play that role anymore. Uh, they are either in prison or in exile outside the country. Also, lots of non-Islamist uh, affiliated organizations have been closed or their activities have been restricted. Currently, people are trying to figure out what they do every day. Now, we're sort of in a state of transition, like only in the past few days, there is another conversation about uh, people who are saying, I just woke up to find myself not middle class anymore uh with the with another round of lifting of uh fuel subsidies uh or another devaluation of the Egyptian pound. So people now are in the middle of trying to find out, figure out uh how they will survive. At the grassroots level there are individual attempts at small scales. There are some grassroots organizations that are totally apolitical, non-ideological, just trying to help people as much as possible. Uh, they continue to exist, definitely not at the scale they were uh, under Mubarak. But beyond that, I think there is a need for more. And we are yet to find out uh, how the situation will unfold because the the political, the, sorry, the economic hardship is continuing to unfold, continuing to worsen as I speak, literally. There's a lot of, I would say, escapism that comes with that. Less and less opportunities to like meet people you don't know, like that open environment is over, which means I don't know how much of this is the regime and how much of this is like, or the state of things in Turkey. And some of it is, you know, with the pandemic, like a lot of people like retreating to the countryside, kind of like disengaging from public life, you know, not to say like the countryside can't be a place of public life, but people like really doing that, like to kind of isolate themselves from public life, because that that's how they can you know deal with it. That's also because of like the cost of things economically, as well as like the political environments. I think. There's a general sense, like from my last visit there, of people feeling like nobody cares about us. What's different from a decade ago 
was that a decade ago there was repression, but people felt like we felt like we could change things by action, you know. And now it's just like uh, there obviously there are people who are still doing that, but they have to be very brave. Like the bar is that much higher, and a lot of people who are doing that are like people who have already been in prison and come out, you know, like they just like have to be over like a certain uh, bar of like fear to be able to do anything. I think that's one major difference in people's lives is that because like when being political is so criminalized, like it feels like scary to do even like, or to say uh, anything like to be a whistleblower in your workplace, let's say, or to organize something in your community, lest it be like misconstrued and like you suddenly you end up in prison. Like uh, just the, the state repression seems so random like those so randomized so people who like feel like they might not otherwise be seen as like big fish feel like they don't want to take the risk you know it's just really really come to the point where the regime like politicize all activity as political activity even if it's not seen to people as political activity and that's very that's very exhausting to people who live there. Like it's it's just like you kind of you're just trying to live your life and you can't. So I would say like it goes beyond what we traditionally understand as the realm of politics. Arfa Hanum Sherwani is keenly aware how certain segments of Indian society, including Muslims, Dalits, and secularists, feel a profound sense of unease and fear. So I think they are very uh, perplexed. Uh, they are very, very worried about what their future is going to be. We've just completed 75 years of India's independence. And I can't really entirely say with confidence what people are really thinking about the next 25 years when India is 100 years old. Um, a, a lot of us uh, Muslims or people who do not believe in, um, you know, in the way the political direction this country has taken um, that if you're not going to go with this stream, you don't know what's going to happen to you. Because what we are witnessing right now is that, you know, India has had a history of communal violence. We know there have been sporadic um, incidents of communal violence, but state as such was not such a direct party to it. Sometimes it may have been a mute spectator. Sometimes it may have been an indirect ally. Sometimes, you know, the the administration, the police, the courts may have been um, partisan, but at the same time, there was still India's constitution, which against all of this guaranteed at least some basic rights, some basic freedoms, some basic guarantee that we had as as citizens, as, as Muslims or Hindus, but I would say more specifically because this is what the danger is. Whenever you talk about this whole model of democracy, it has this danger of turning into a tranny of majority. And I feel right now what we are facing is actually that, that facing the tranny of majority where the democracy has actually turned into the rule by and rule of the majority and for the majority. So by, for, and of the majority. So I feel what the Muslims are thinking these days is that they have a very uncertain future in in India's democracy. Uh, it gives me, it makes me nervous to even tell the 200 million Muslims that they have no future Indian democracy where there are people who are who call themselves um, religious leaders, who are saints, 
uh, who are very close to the people in power rather i would say not just silently but vocally supported by them they they create the whole political vote base for uh, the party which is ruling us right now they have openly outrightly from public uh, meetings uh, called for genocide of muslims they have called for rapes of um, you know muslim women um they have called for total eradication of a whole population uh, i'm i'm telling you about these saints who came up with this whole new constitution where they do not want to give voting rights to muslims and and i'm afraid i can't really say that these people are fringe elements they are actually in the center of what indian politics is right now what the the majority and the mainstream sentiment is right now so if i can if i can say so even at the cost of not giving the the majoritarian powers more influence and more power than what they have i don't want to overestimate them but i also don't want to underestimate them that mainstream sentiment right now in india is anti muslim sentiment so given that background muslims are very fearful insecure perplexed and uncertain about their future in india resistance even though the government has very successfully and vigorously repressed any forms of assembly or organization uh has prevented the people and civil society from taking action uh towards uh issues like minority rights women's rights uh social rights for the people they have not managed to end the conversation and despite their control of the media their very strict control of the media uh and their crackdown on those who expressed their views on social media like a lot of people were arrested over facebook posts or memes uh these posts and jokes and conversations among the people have not ended the the still continue people seem to be finding creative ways to to deal with that like for example people would uh publish a facebook post and and leave it to create some hype and then delete it so that the the person who published the post cannot be traced by the government and arrested for instance uh this doesn't always work sometimes a government finds out who initiated a post and they do arrest them and this has been happening or a video on tiktok or any other uh social media platform but uh it has continued jokes about cc and the government have continued very uh bitterly and strongly that cc had in public had to say in public to the people in one of his tv appearances stop making jokes stop the jokes enough the the angered him so much they provoked him just people's jokes about him provoked him that much as a communicator i understand that despite this whole total control over the sources of information the people who are at the receiving end of this majoritarian politics and some people even may be well may well be a part of this majority but at the same time you know occupationally economically sometimes socially they find themselves at the margins of this whole political discourse 
So I would say despite that, over the course of last three, four years, there have been four major mass movements. The first one started with Dalits and tribals protesting against the Supreme Court um, order. Um, There was this uh, uh, verdict by the apex court, which kind of in an effect effectively said that it was trying to that it, it would have if they they feared the Dalits feared that it would dilute the SCST uh, Prevention Atrocities Act. So this protects the marginalized communities like such as Dalits and uh, and tribals against discrimination atrocities. So uh, what happens is that the order which was passed by the Supreme Court is sparked fears that it would lead to increased discrimination and this will take away the protection that they have under this act. They came on the streets, there was rioting, there was, um, you know, serious law and order issues. So this was the first protest. This was in the first tenure of Narendra Modi government. The second was the NTCA NRC movement, which was initiated by Muslims because Muslims feared that, you know, with this dangerous combination of, uh, you know, CAA, uh, this along with NRC, where the government was trying to make a national reg- register for citizens, this would actually take away their citizenship or will maybe put it in danger. So then Muslims came out and protested. And then the third, then farmers came out and protested when the government, without consulting the farmers, uh, it, it enacted three farm laws. And then four, which was which is very recent, there is something called Agnipath Yojana, where young men will be inducted into the armed forces uh, and they will be there for four years and then they will retire. And only one fourth of those people who will be trained under this Agnipath Yojana, Agnipath scheme, will be absorbed. And three fourth of them uh, basically will be, will leave with an uncertain future. So four major mass movements. So I would say this is how citizens are showing up. They they do know what they, what they stand to lose and they... They want to resist against this whole oppressive um, policy making. People are uh, trying to uh, support one another uh, through charity, even though this is also being limited. A lot of uh, organizers of of charity uh, or civil society organizations, uh, some have been arrested. Organizations have been uh, closed. Um but just people continue to come up with creative uh, ways to help one another. The the thing is, though, the situation is is dangerous. It it is hard to imagine it will continue to be stable for as long as CC wants it to continue to be stable, because it's it's very very restrictive for people who were capable of. Mm, making a revolution uh, before and ousting a president. It doesn't mean that a revolution will happen again in the same way, at the same scale, because you're not allowed to to have one. But if if it hadn't been really dangerous, the government wouldn't have, or the CC state wouldn't have continued to exercise its crackdown as it does. Like, this has been going on since 2013, 2014. So every year we hope and pray that, okay, they have arrested enough people. Maybe they don't need to arrest anymore because we've got the message and nobody's organizing politically anymore. Nobody's hoping to. People just want to live in peace. 
So you would think that the government would stop arresting people, but they don't. Year after year, since 2013, the level of arrests, the number of those arrested doesn't go down. So this is indica- an indication that the state does realize it. it is very... It's it's in a tricky, fragile situation. It's not it's not safe from the people's wrath. Chapter five, looking to the future. Yeah, I think for India to survive as a democracy, it has to be uh, an equal India. Like when you talk about this whole Hindu nation, this whole project of a Hindu nation, I feel India cannot be. You know, people, some people, some political scientists give it a terminology, give it a term called Hindu democracy. I feel Hindu and democracy cannot be spoken in the same breath because for a Hindu supremacist society, Hindus have to be more equal than others. They have to have a certain supremacy over the other religions. And the essential, uh, you know, prerequisite for any democracy is to treat all its citizens equally. And that is why they're equal rights. That is why the value of one man, one vote, one value, the whole formula of one man, one vote, one value, it is the foundation stone of any democracy, be it Indian democracy or any other Western democracy. So I feel if India has to survive and thrive as a democracy, it cannot be a Hindu or a Muslim democracy. For other nations, how they look at India, I think there is a lesson that how several people thought that we will not be able to survive as as a nation. The only reason why we survived was there were minimum guarantees and there was minimum security that every citizen, irrespective of which community, caste, religion, gender that that citizen came from, felt a certain degree of, of guarantee, a security, a place in Indian society and democracy. I think right now that place is threatened, that minimum guarantee is threatened, and that is why there is a sense of insecurity. I feel the only way forward for any society uh, to to remain stable is to uh, treat its citizens equally. And what we are seeing in India right now, this whole chaotic environment, I think this is lesson not just for India, but Every global citizen is a stakeholder in what happens in the largest democracy of the world. So the world cannot really afford to turn its, um, you know, back towards us and and say, look, whatever is happening to you is your internal matter. So I feel human rights cannot be an internal matter of any democracy. Um, I do feel when India goes downhill and this whole terrible backsliding of Indian democracy, every global citizen has something to lose. In terms of lessons, living and surviving under authoritarianism is is hard. It's uh, it's not a walk in the park. In in every sense, it's uh, it's very costly. I would say people should not believe should not believe uh, politicians who tell them that it's okay to live under authoritarianism or without democracy uh, because we're going to give you some economic 
bribes in return, like subsidies or some welfare measures, for instance, because this is not, um, what's the word? This is not sustainable. And they would not be able to continue to do that because for this to continue to happen efficiently, uh, there needs to be accountability. And authoritarian regimes are typically corrupt. Systems that live without or that function without being held accountable are very likely to be corrupt. It is just human nature. They will be corrupt. Any person, any entity that is not held accountable will end up being corrupt. That's just, I can comfortably say that's the natural order of things. So don't buy into this promise of a comfortable economic life um, in return for tolerating the absence of democracy. Don't buy into uh, promises or into the rhetoric that democracy doesn't suit your culture or your heritage or it's for certain kinds of people, certain cultures. This is just what politicians want to tell you because democracy is costly for politicians and it's not costly for people. They just make up these lies. Freedom and being respected, being allowed to have a say in your life, every individual is entitled to it. That's something regardless of their culture. I think political leaders that think that they can contain these like tensions about how to create uh, stability end up creating instability. I think this is very interesting because they think like, okay, if we give an inch, like they're going to take many, many meters, like feet. It makes things worse, you know? Like, because when you tell people like you can't do this, like you can't speak your own language or you you can't practice your religion, like they're going to really want to do that thing more than they even originally maybe did. To me, like looking at the history world, like those things always come back. They always come back to haunt the the whole project. The incident that immediately comes to mind for me is the death, or more precisely, the killing of my friend and Egyptian economist uh, Ayman Hadhoud. Um, we learned about his death in March. We uh, do not know exactly when he died. He uh, he disappeared in February. So for a month, we didn't know uh, his whereabouts. His family were looking for him. Uh, They uh, were always told uh, by security apparatuses that, um, no, he was not in custody. Uh, Sometimes he would hear from some sources that he was with a certain security apparatus, but they could never uh, reach him or see him. Um, Eventually... A month later, they, uh, they finally found out that, um, or they actually were told to pick up his body from uh, the uh, government-run, the public Egyptian hospital. So we, we know that he was forcefully disappeared. We know that he was uh, in custody. His body had signs of torture. 
um, this is not something new or surprising for the record of the Egyptian government, but this incident happening to someone I know personally and to someone I know was a very good and dedicated person and committed no crime whatsoever really speaks to what authoritarianism means. It it means that you can someone can just disappear and then they never come back for no reason, no trial, no nothing. Systems like the Egyptian system and, and Saudi system and, and other systems enjoy the protection and uh, political and military support of, of Western governments. If Western governments don't preserve the credibility of their rhetoric about democracy, it is it is not just bad for for the people in those systems supported by demo- authoritarian systems supported by western governments it's it's bad for everybody everywhere it normalizes a culture that human rights can be violated when it's necessary sometimes if this becomes normalized then nobody's safe anywhere You've been listening to The Rise of the Strongman, part of a series called The New World Disorder. Thanks to Arfa Khanum Shirwani, broadcaster and editor with TheWire.in, Jahan Takai Lu, PhD candidate in anthropology at the Graduate Center at City University of New York. She's also a co-editor of the Turkey page at jadalia.com. And Sarah Horshed, PhD candidate in history at Western University. This episode was produced by Nahid Mustafa. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.